Hi, and welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast, where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. My name is Steve Thomas, manager of the Grayson Branch, and on today's episode, we welcome Dr. Daniel Immergluck. He'll be introduced by Miriam Mayer from our Adult Services Department, and the question and answer session will be moderated by Ron Gauthier from our Youth Services Department. Take it away, Miriam. Thank you for joining Gwinnett County Public Library for Housing, Race, and Exclusion in Modern Day Atlanta program. My name is Mary Mayer, and I'm an Adult Services Specialist for the library. I would like to introduce our moderator and our guest speaker. Ronald M. Gauthier is the Youth Service and Community Partnerships Manager at Gwinnett County Public Library, where he has been employed for over 16 and a half years. He has been actively involved in outreach, community partnership building, and program planning for all demographics, ages, and ethnicities. Dr. Emmer Gluck is Professor of Urban Studies at Georgia State University. His research concerns housing, race, neighborhood change, gentrification, segregation, real estate markets, and community development. Dr. Emmer Gluck is the author of five books and over 120 scholarly articles, book chapters, and research reports. He has consulted for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the U.S. Department of Justice, Philanthropic Foundations, and local legal aid and other nonprofits and government agencies. Professor Emmer Gluck has been cited and quoted in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the AJC, and many other international, national, and local media outlets. He has testified several times before the U.S. Congress and the Federal Reserve Board. He has served as a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and as a senior fellow at the Center for Community Progress in Washington, D.C. Recently, Dr. Emmer Glug served on Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens' Transition Committee. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Ron. I really want to thank, again, the Gwinnett Library for having me. This book, which came out late last year, has really been kind of a catharsis for me. It's the result of 17 years of researching, writing, teaching, and doing policy work in Atlanta, both at Georgia Tech and Georgia State. It's a book about what might have been, a book about missed opportunities, and lessons not just for Atlanta, but for other cities, especially kind of sunbelt growing cities. The great urban critical scholar and activist Mike Davis, who some people may know, passed away last year. And somebody wrote about him when he passed that loving a city means more than loving its edifice, more than loving its built environment. It's about the people who live there and who might live there. It doesn't mean just boosting the city. It means sometimes severely criticizing it with a hope that it can be a better city. And that's the approach that I took to writing this book. It's not always an easy read. It's not a booster read by any stretch of the imagination, but it is with the intent of making better and especially more just cities. My presentation is a combination of just talking about some facts, most of which are in the book, but also reading brief excerpts from the book to give you a flavor for the writing in the book if you haven't had a chance to read any of it. And I'm going to pick just pieces from each chapter to talk about. So I won't be able to talk about everything in the book and in the Q&A, some things that I don't touch on may come up or you may come up with other issues that may be related. But the first chapter of the book is a synopsis really of the history of the city from the latter part of the 19th century, but especially the 20th century. I rely a lot on existing literature that's already there. And I felt it was important to lay out a context, especially around housing and race and the development of the city. Chapter one talks about the early part of the 20th century, the anti-Black violence in the city with the 1906 race massacre, 
the efforts to racially zone the city of Atlanta so that blacks could only live in some neighborhoods by law with explicit racial zoning. That was actually done, but eventually that kind of practice was overturned by state and federal Supreme Courts. But then cities like Atlanta moved to what I call racialized zoning, which still made it hard for blacks to live in many parts of the city because it made housing too expensive in certain parts of the city. That's a legacy that many cities and many suburbs are still living with. I talk about the development of what Atlanta is really famous for, the black-white biracial urban regime, the governing regime, where black power was allowed to exist and develop, especially during the middle and later parts of the 20th century, but that it was subordinated to white corporate power, and that this black-white urban regime, which was really perfected and refined under Mayor Hartsfield, persisted not only through the 20th century, but still exists today, particularly in the city of Atlanta itself. There was some pushback under Mayor Maynard Jackson when he was first elected, but that was short-lived. I talk in the chapter about negotiated racial transition in the city, where certain neighborhoods were identified for Black neighborhood development to avoid the kind of violence that the KKK and the Colombians and other racist groups would perpetuate on Black families trying to move into new neighborhoods. Also in this chapter, I talk about the growth of the city boundaries in 1952, in which the city annexed the Buckhead area, but also Western suburbs into the city so that the city grew in size by about threefold. I talk about urban renewal, the highway uh, and expressway development, and the resulting removal of Black neighborhoods that those two things were resulted in frequently. I talk about white flight, white avoidance of the city, and suburbanization in the 20th century but also Black suburbanization. Atlanta led the country in developing some of the first Black neighborhoods and Black suburbs in the country, even before World War II. But then after the city annexed many of these communities and the the metropolitan area grew, it wasn't just whites who moved into the suburbs. Blacks also moved increasingly into the suburbs, especially as they moved into the region. I also talk about the population decline in the center in the city of Atlanta proper on how population started shrinking in the 70s and how white flight accelerated and how the city viewed itself as today what we would call a shrinking city, a declining city, and that that mentality became one of always trying to chase capital investment and begging for investors to move into the city. And even when the city began to gentrify and become very popular in the 1990s, but especially the 2000s, policymakers still to this day seem to act like the city is shrinking and that it has to subsidize developers and subsidize firms moving into the city. And then I close the chapter with a very important period that I call, and others have called, the Olympification of the city. And that is a period of redevelopment around the city with an effort to basically redevelop press neighborhoods and especially public housing sites in the city. And what it resulted in is a great deal of demolition of public housing and eventually some redevelopment of those sites, but often not. And I close the chapter with a paragraph that reads, by demolishing stigmatized and problematized sites in the city and dispersing the poor residents living there, the Atlanta Housing Authority provided an important ingredient in the revalorization of the city including in key locations such as the Old Fourth Ward, Midtown, East Lake, and others. 
By dispersing the poor away from these sites, the agency assisted the real estate market in exploiting substantial rent gaps with public housing removed and the reality or sometimes the perception of lower crime and fewer black low-income neighbors. Real estate investors could put the land to, quote unquote, its highest and best use, which often effectively meant higher income, less black residents. Chapter two focuses on the city of Atlanta and particularly on the Atlanta Beltline. I write, no redevelopment project in the Atlanta region and arguably in the country has been more transformative than the Atlanta Beltline. In the early 2000s, developers, consultants, boosters, and many public officials saw the promise of a major city-led public-private partnership built on the back of expected rising property values to reshape the city both physically and demographically. Even before the first trails were opened at the tail end of the foreclosure crisis, the signs were there. As early as 2004, well before the Beltline Tax Allocation District was adopted in late 2005, property values near the Beltline began rising rapidly and speculators began scooping up nearby properties. Alexander Garvin, the well-known landscape architect, authored a report in 2004 called the Emerald Necklace Report. He wrote, quote, the Beltline's future users are an attractive market. Early word of the project has already accelerated real estate values, unquote. The idea that speculators were already scooping up properties and bidding up land values even before the project really started wasn't a problem for Alexander Garvin or many other boosters of the Beltline, and it certainly wasn't a problem for the development community and investors, land investors in the city. In April 2005, a developer proclaimed that the Beltline was, quote, the most exciting real estate project since Sherman burned Atlanta, unquote. The statement, if jarring, was revealing because decades of disinvestment had effectively devastated the neighborhoods surrounding many parts of the Beltline. In 2007, I did a study for Georgia Stand Up, a community group, of home sales near the Beltline from 2000 to 2006, and I found that they increased by more than 130% over this period, more than three times the rate of growth for homes farther from the Beltline. In 2016, Ryan Gravel, the architect of the Beltline, and Nathaniel Smith of the Partnership for Southern Equity resigned from the Beltline Partnership over its poor progress on affordable housing issues. In 2017, a student and I updated my earlier study and looked at 2011 to 2016 home values, and we found that home values were increasing much faster near the Beltline again than farther from the Beltline. And increases were fastest in the southwest segment of the Beltline, where many vulnerable residents lived. In 2017, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a series on the failures of the Beltline to do significant affordable housing 12 years after the tax allocation district was adopted for the Beltline. In weeks following that, the CEO of the Beltline organization was forced out. I close the chapter with this. This, quote, transformative, unquote, project effectively reshaped the built environment in core city neighborhoods, regardless of who would end up living there. The project was not simply the result of atomistic, unplanned market forces, but the product of a coalition of institutional actors, including core members of the regime, working toward a vision of a more affluent and whiter city population. It was a key contributor and was a highly, uh, to gentrification and a highly political project emblematic of a city obsessed with the next big thing. The next chapter focuses again on the city of Atlanta and kind of particularly on the period following the foreclosure crisis where gentrification accelerated. During the 21st century, and especially following the Great Recession, I write, and the foreclosure crisis, employers began practically tripping over themselves to locate in the city of Atlanta. Jobs increased in the city proper 
from 330,000 in 2011 to 437,000 by 2019, a 32% increase. Many of these jobs paid over $100,000 a year. Firms like NCR, Honeywell, Google, Microsoft, Invesco, and others located in the city. Over the longer 1990 to 2019 period, roughly a 30-year period, there was tremendous change in the city proper. The share of the population that is Black families or Black households dropped from 67%, basically two-thirds, to less than half, about 48%. The percentage of the population that was college-educated went from just over a quarter, 27%, to well over half, 56%. And these are not the same families. The city median income, this is perhaps the most dramatic statistic, went in the city was only 60% of the metropolitan median income in 1990. By 2019, the city median income is 110% of the metropolitan median income, so that the city is now significantly more affluent than the suburbs. The median family income in the city in real dollars, inflation-adjusted dollars, went from about $50,000 in 2021 dollars in 1990 to $96,000 in 2021 by 2019, so basically doubled in real terms. I focus specifically on the loss of lower-cost rental housing in the city that was so important for lower-income families from 2010 to 2019, this post-crisis era. Low-cost rentals, those that cost about $800 a month in kind of current dollars, dropped by 7,000 units in only nine years in the city. That's a 20% loss in that affordable housing stock. In the meantime, the city actually gained about 25% in its rental stock, but all of the new housing was luxury rental housing priced at more than $1,500 a month with many priced at well over $2,000 a month. I also talk in the chapter about the fundamental dysfunctions of public finance in the city that do not allow it, did not allow it, and continue to not allow it to capture the tremendous growth in land values for the public purse, for the public, so that the folks who are most hurt by rising land values, which are low-income renters because their rents go up, those mechanisms are not in place. And there are three fundamental problems. First, there is over-subsidization of employers and developers. There are two competing development authorities in the city of Atlanta, the Fulton County Development Authority and Invest Atlanta, which is the city's development authority. And they basically conduct a race to the bottom to offer the most tax breaks to developers and firms And most of those tax breaks were offered in hot market neighborhoods around the Beltline in Midtown, places that should not need subsidy. The second and the biggest problem is that Fulton County severely undertaxes commercial property. Basically, three different studies have found that the county undertaxes large commercial property on the order of 50% under taxation. This is mostly due to the ease of large property owners winning appeals on their property tax assessments. And then the third problem is later in the decade, around 2018, the city changed its property tax policies to allow homeowners to roll back their assessment levels to to basically financial crisis levels around 2011. And that severely benefited folks who own large homes to the detriment particularly of renters. Pond City Market is a poster child, which many people know, of the first and second problem that I talked about. One is it received a huge subsidy especially a property tax freeze that lasted almost nine years 
that froze the property taxes at the level they were when the building was vacant and undeveloped. So for nine years, the building was taxed only about a quarter million dollars a year. Yet conservatively, the building is worth over a billion dollars. So it should have been paying on the order of 15 to 20 million dollars a year in taxes. And instead, it was only paying a quarter million dollars a year. On top of that, until this past summer, due to some advocacy, the county still had the property appraised at only $40 million instead of the over $1 billion that it's worth. I write in the chapter, despite the city's land values growing tremendously from the beginning of the 2010s through the end of the decade, the citizens of Atlanta, especially the non-property owning ones, did not benefit nearly as much from the city's growth and increased land values as they should have. The vast majority of the benefits accrued to landowners, speculators, and investors. After clearing out most of its public housing, the city was primed for rapid change at the turn of the century. Despite the city's transformation since then, local government has continued to act as if it was still the 1980s and that Atlanta was still a shrinking city. The city continued to cater to capital and excessively subsidize and undertax commercial property. Chapter four shifts the lens, broadens the lens to the entire region, including the suburbs. And chapter five focuses particularly on the suburbs. But chapter four focuses on a really critical period in metropolitan Atlanta, and that is the foreclosure crisis and the very uneven recovery after the crisis that happened over a long period of time. I write, the subprime crisis that began in 2007 hit Atlanta hard, and it hit Black families and neighborhoods the hardest. The crisis and its aftermath were the products of a perfect storm of federal deregulation and yield-hungry capital markets a state government that turned its back on reining in subprime lenders, and then a timid federal response to surging foreclosures combined with weak state and local policies. In 2010, as an example of weak state policy, the U.S. Treasury Department awarded Georgia $340 million in federal hardest hit fund dollars to assist homeowners who were at risk of foreclosure. By April of 2012, the state had provided only $23 million to homeowners, while foreclosures were topping $10,000 a month. In 2017, the Special Inspector General for the Federal Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, released a scathing audit of Georgia's hardest-hit fund program. The press release of the federal audit stated that Georgia has consistently ranked among the least effective state agencies in the nation in dispersing hardest-hit fund dollars. The state argued that it needed to guard hardest-hit fund dollars for taxpayers, yet the audit countered that the state was guarding HHF funds from Georgians who, quote, within 30 days could not get IRS to issue and stamp a tax transcript or their employer to issue a letter saying that the unemployment was not the homeowner's fault. They even, quote unquote, guarded the funds from one woman who could not continue in her job while undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. At the tail end of the crisis in 2011-2012, I write, federal policymakers encouraged large-scale Wall Street-backed private equity firms to enter into the single-family market. Starting in 2012, they began buying up tens of thousands of foreclosed homes in the region and in other mostly sunbelt metros. Atlanta was an ideal strike zone for these private equity giants, given its large number of foreclosures flowing through the system, weak tenant protections in the state, and strong demand for housing, with many households shut out of the mortgage market. 
The result of these forces was a major transfer of tens of thousands of single-family homes from homeowners, including many families of color, to investors, including a new institutional breed of investor. In fact, in January of 2012, the Federal Reserve released a paper on the growing glut of foreclosed homes. The authors of this paper argued that policymakers had a choice between allowing families to purchase more homes at a time when values were very low or spurring a speedier flow of these homes to large-scale institutional investors. It's clear that federal policymakers chose the latter more than the former. This white paper was repeatedly cited in investor prospectuses and private equity pitches at invitation-only country club lunches. Within a few weeks of this report, Warren Buffett, in a widely cited interview, proclaimed that he would purchase, quote, a couple hundred thousand single-family homes if he could, unquote. Policymakers opted to facilitate the scooping up of low-valued foreclosed properties by large investors rather than to support the ability of Black and less affluent families to purchase homes. In doing so, they steered land wealth towards an increasingly concentrated ownership structure and away from the very groups who had been hit so hard by the foreclosure crisis. The fifth chapter focuses on the suburbs. In 1990, poverty was mostly in the city and in the exurbs, the far out counties, really rural, almost rural counties at the time. Now, there are increasing concentrations of poverty in most of the five core counties, including Gwinnett and Cobb, of course, DeKalb and Clayton, and even in places like Cherokee and Forsyth. So there's this growing dispersal of poverty, although it is somewhat concentrated in certain places, and the region is becoming much more diverse racially and ethnically. And certain suburbs, particularly more affluent suburbs, are seeing this greater diversity. And while some may embrace it, others have pushed back against it, particularly in the northern suburbs. So the region grew, especially after 2000, from about 4 million people to about 6 million people by 2019, a gain of almost 50%. Very importantly, the metro went from being majority white to minority white, which it is now. And over this 20-year period, just after 2000, 80% of the region's growth of that 2 million increase in population was Black, Latinx, and Asian families. But in the face of that growing diversity, there's been, unfortunately, re-energized efforts at racial and economic exclusion in some communities, especially in what real estate people have traditionally called the favored quarter of the metro which is the north, the area to the north of I-85 and I-75. Besides exclusionary zoning, you know, large lots, single family only, and exclusionary building codes where only concrete is allowed, I talk about a displace and replace pattern of suburban redevelopment that is planned and subsidized in particular places to displace communities of lower income renters and replace them with commercial development and higher income households. I talk about the Sandy Springs Gateway Project, where the Sandy Springs Development Authority issued $100 million in bonds in 2014 to fund a 21-acre mixed-use redevelopment. Real estate websites portrayed the project as demolishing outdated rental buildings to replace them with first-rate apartment living and commercial properties. The Gateway Project involved the demolition of 1,100 older rental units, displacing an estimated 3,000 residents, over 80% of whom are estimated to have been Latinx and Black. These apartments housed many families 
lower income families, mostly with children, displacing those children from their schools. In Marietta, another example, the city in 2013 proposed a $68 million bond to redevelop a 1.2-mile corridor of Franklin Road, home to older apartment buildings again and retail, and a significant, substantial Black and Latinx population. Two local politicos active in Republican County politics, including a former chief of staff of Senator Johnny Isaacson, formed an advocacy group to push for the redevelopment scheme and the bond. The former chief of staff told the Marietta Daily Journal that, quote, we see communities that ignore problems and eventually suffer the loss of identity and the loss of economic activity and the loss of the middle class. And we saw that happening in Marietta when bad government policies create high concentrations of slum-like housing, it takes the government to step in and fix the problem, unquote. Marietta's mayor, a couple years later, told the local paper as the buildings were being demolished that, quote, it's almost like a dream. It's almost like it's 1970 again, unquote. The mayor blamed the area's problems on federal fair housing policy that protected families with children from housing discrimination, arguing that the 1988 expansion of the Fair Housing Act was the reason for the area's deterioration. Quote, he said, Without children, you had less problems. And with the change in the law, the apartments began to slide, unquote. I talked in the chapter about the growing immigrant population of the region, especially since 1990 and since 2000. Basically, about 15% of the region is now foreign-born or immigrants. It's very diverse. Folks coming from Latin America, Asia, Africa. And I zero in as kind of a case study on Buford Highway. And I write it's a place that is dramatically transformed after the last 40 years from a quintessential 1970s auto dominated arterial lined by car dealers and repair shops, nondescript strip malls, and other white working and middle class class consumer uses to one of a rich multi-ethnic mix of restaurants, retail, and service businesses. As Marion Liu, who founded the We Love Buford Highway organization in 2015, put it, the growth of multi-ethnic and often immigrant-owned businesses along the corridor has given Buford Highway its, quote, identity and vitality, despite the road being an unsafe, underdeveloped, and underutilized corridor designed to move cars and trucks. Unquote. I focus particularly on the housing precarity that has been so acute in the last decade along Buford Highway. From 2014 to 2019, in just five years, the number of rental units that cost less than $800 dropped dramatically along Buford Highway, especially in DeKalb County. Brookhaven lost 61% of its rentals priced at that level. Shambly lost 52% and Doraville lost 84%. Together, these three suburbs lost 1,900 low-cost rental units over only five years, representing over 60% of the housing stock at the beginning of that 2014 to 2019 period. Meanwhile, units priced over $2,000 a month more than tripled from less than 500 to over 1,500 units. I write, over the last three decades, to sum up this chapter, the Atlanta suburbs have become increasingly diverse, both racially and economically. At the same time, many more affluent and whiter suburbs, especially those located in the favored quarter or near the favored quarter, have pushed back against the growing diversity they've seen within and near their borders. Wealthier homeowners and local politicians have sought increased ability to exclude via secession and the greater zoning and police powers it brings. They've also actively worked with developers and others to subsidize the redevelopment of parts of their communities that house lower-income Black and Latinx households, predominantly renters, resulting in large-scale displacement and exclusion. With my time left, I want to talk about the four 
key themes of the book. The fourth one is the kind of overarching theme. The first one is what I've talked a good bit about, which is the spatial restructuring of the region so that the city has become significantly more affluent, seen significant declines in black families and significant declines in affordability. The suburbs have become more diverse, but there is persistent attempts to carve out spaces of exclusion, especially in the northern suburbs. The second point that I focus on the city of Atlanta, but I think this may be a problem that is occurring in some suburban communities as well, is the failure of the city of Atlanta to capture a substantial share of the tremendous growth in land values so that it can reinvest a fair share of that growth into affordable housing because the people who are being hit the hardest by the growth in land values are low-income renters who need affordable housing the most. The third point that I haven't had time to go into, but I delve more into it in the book, is that state government, as in most states, shapes the redevelopment opportunities at the local level. And in Georgia, those are mostly to the detriment of those most vulnerable to exclusion and displacement. State law serves the interest of landlords, developers, lenders, and homeowners associations. Local governments are given the power to exclude and displace and redevelop on top of affordable housing, but not to provide stronger tenant protections, not to engage in rent stabilization, not to engage in fair housing regulations, and often not even to be able to raise money for affordable housing. The fourth and overarching theme is that cities and suburbs in the region have passed through a series of inflection points during which planning and policy choices have continually favored exclusion over equity and inclusion. And with each passing opportunity and inflection point, it gets harder and more expensive to favor equity and inclusion. I want to close by reading a couple paragraphs from the conclusion of the book. Some witnessing the sorts of racial and economic exclusion described in this book argue that these patterns are inevitable in growing cities and regions like Atlanta, where the conditions are ripe. They suggest that rampant gentrification is preordained, a product of market forces that cannot be altered or slowed. These observers are also likely to argue that the suburban redevelopment in a revanchist, racialized, displace and replace fashion is also unavoidable. Such responses are perhaps understandable, especially without grasping the mechanisms of how urban and suburban places get reimagined, reshaped, and remade. They reflect a failure to understand the reality that, like it or not, government is responsible for establishing and regulating many of the institutional structures within which markets operate. And so it bears a significant share of the responsibility for the racialized exclusion and displacement of poor communities. The changes in the region over the last 25 years, much like the changes throughout the 20th century, are not the result of apolitical, impersonal, anonymized market forces. The city is a politically and socially constructed space, and its trajectories are the products of policy decisions. No single change in policy or planning will by itself reverse the trends of exclusion that bear down hardest on those whose lives are most precarious. Yet changes to how projects are done, how they are financed, and whether planners and deal makers are forced to consider the immediate and longer term questions of who benefits and who is harmed by the next big placemaking project can and do make a difference. Many of the policy choices that have been made in the region since the 1990s could have been made differently in ways that would have led to less gentrification and displacement, more housing stability and affordability, and less reshuffling of poor families, mostly households of color, from one place to another. There's always an opportunity to do substantially better the next time. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Emma Gluck. That was an outstanding presentation. And I'm sure our viewers learned quite a bit. And I'll emphasize again, uh, your book is authoritative, comprehensive, and one of the best books I've read about housing affordability issues that's come out in a very long time. So thank you again for writing that. Thank so we'll, you. we'll take a look at some of the questions, see what we've got here. Question one, what is your view of the next two, three years in Atlanta from a single family home perspective with all the economic development being planned? That's a good question. This is a bit of a strange time, and it's partly because of COVID and fears of a recession, but mostly because of inflation, which was spurred, of course, by the Russian war and COVID supply chain issues. The Federal Reserve intervened and raised interest rates, which have a knock-on effect on mortgage rates. And so mortgage rates went up a lot from, you know, around 3% to now over 6%. They've come down a little bit. And that affects housing purchases because people can't afford the same mortgage payment that they could before with a much higher interest rate. It's been kind of surprising that values haven't declined a little bit more than they have. But I think it's mostly because people are not listing their properties and people are waiting for mortgage rates to come down. I think when mortgage rates come down, I think you're going to see a lot of buying. Now, prices may come down a bit, although Atlanta is not seen as vulnerable as places like California, where prices really have come down. And to some degree, the Texas cities, prices are coming down a little. And that's partly because there are a lot of jobs coming into Atlanta still, into the metro, and there's still a lot of demand. But I also think it's because people are keeping housing off the market. I also think it's not like the mortgage crisis where people had to sell because we had a lot of interventions during COVID to allow people to suspend their mortgages. So that's really been a helpful policy to kind of stabilize the market. So I do think, you know, prices may come down a little bit. I don't think they're going to come crashing down in Atlanta, but it'll be interesting when mortgage rates come back down. I don't think they're going to go back down to 3% for a very long time, but if they come down to 5% and then in the fours, you're going to see pent-up demand. So I think jobs are still coming, maybe not quite as fast. Uh, so I think you're going to continue to see gentrification pressures, housing market pressures. And I think we're going to continue to see that push outward and push south. What we were seeing during COVID was prices coming up in the southern suburbs, especially because they had not come up before. Another question, what policies would you suggest for cities, especially if state law doesn't change to favor the vulnerable more? That's a great question. Really tough. I really do think that the constraints on local action, especially for suburbs, the city of Atlanta is to some degree has an advantage because it has a strong tax base. It has Buckhead, it has Midtown, and especially if it can fix the property tax assessment problem, it can generate a couple hundred million dollars a year at least by fixing that. If it does that, it's going to have money to spend on affordable housing if it wants to. That's a political decision. It's harder for a small suburb that is mostly residential right? Because there's just not an available tax base. And yet we have $12 billion in cash sitting at the state capitol and $6 billion in surplus, and that could be used for affordable housing. Instead, it's probably going to be given to homeowners, some of whom need it, but many of whom don't. In terms of local policy, though, I think cities have to get together and start putting pressure on their state policymakers to allow cities to make policy change to just stop the preemption. 
because right now cities are significantly hamstrung by state preemptions and there needs to be a coalition. It should be the Georgia Municipal Association, but they don't seem very interested in it. But there needs to be a group of mayors and elected officials who start raising housing higher on the agenda and to push back on preemption. Other things that local governments can do, though, I think is follow places like Atlanta, Decatur on adopting inclusionary zoning ordinances, relaxing their zoning so that Decatur is just hopefully going to pass in the next few weeks the ability to build two to four unit properties on single family lots, things like that. Those are incremental small things, but there are at least something uh, is better than nothing. Another question, what is the best way to make and make is emphasized by the questioner? What is the best way to make politicians focus on affordable housing? That's an excellent question. And, you know, I'm a data guy and I do a lot of studies and I show data. And to be honest, I'm not sure the data is sufficient. There's huge amounts of data that say it's a severe problem in almost any city, almost any suburb in the state. What I didn't see, for example, during all the ads during the recent elections was pictures of people being evicted, was pictures of kids crying when they have to change schools. The human cost of housing instability is severe. And those stories aren't reaching the right people. And then what we also need is tenants to be organized and mobilized. There are some states and some cities where there are tenant associations with tens of thousands of members who send in postcards to their local elected officials and their state elected officials, especially to lobby for change. There is the Housing Justice League that focuses on Atlanta, and it's getting bigger, but we don't have a large, muscular tenants association that can be a lobbying force at the state capitol. And those need to be built up across the state. They can't just be in metro Atlanta, even. So that's really important. How are investors able to receive subsidies with the promise of affordable mixed income housing, but are still able to push out local residents in the process. I think most of the development that pushes out low-income renters is market rate development. Certainly the cases that I mentioned were market rate. In fact, they were luxury developments, mixed use, but not mixed income. But I do know that the North End development in Sandy Springs, at least as how it was originally proposed by the mayor, he called it mixed income, but his version of the mix started at fairly high middle income and went up. You know, it wasn't mixed income. You know, it depends what you mean by mixed income. So people definitely play games with their definition of what mixed income means. Even in the Mixed income projects in Atlanta, like that replaced Techwood Homes, 10 to 20% was really low income. A mixed income development that has low income in Atlanta tends to be about 20%, maybe 30% low income. If you look at mixed income developments in New York City or Boston, the East Coast, they tend to be 50 or 60% low income with the market rate being a minority. So it is very much what percentages you use. And then the enforcement of that is an issue. Great. I think we have time for one more question. What are the most promising ideas you've seen that may be able to reverse, at least slow this trend? I'm afraid there's no easy answer to it. One is giving local governments more control of their housing policies, so ending state preemption. The folks who want preemption, which tends to be conservative lawmakers in Georgia at least, 
they talk about local control, but when it comes to local control on housing, they seem to be against it. But the other thing is money. We are now moving up the ranks of wealthier states. Our tax base, our ability to draw in high-wage jobs, the tech sector is strong, yet we're acting like a poor state. We're giving away the store to recruit companies who want to be here anyway. So stop doing that and use taxes instead of giving every homeowner $500 when the majority of homeowners, yes, everybody wants $500, but that's not going to be the make or break of whether somebody stays in their home. But $1,000 a year to a renter can keep them in their home. So target money to the people who need it the most because we know that unstable housing is a predictor of poor school outcomes, of criminal activity. It's hard to get a job without a stable address. And it, and if you have an eviction filing, it's hard to find future housing. So invest in housing stability, not in peanut butter approaches that are aimed at getting you reelected. Well, thank you. That was an incredible, a very fascinating presentation. And again, the book is a must read. So if our viewers out there do not have a copy, you need to get a copy as soon as you can. I have mine. <laughs> thank you so much, Ron. Thanks so much, everyone. And Miriam. And, uh, we hope you'll follow up for future programs at Gwinnett County Public Library. Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library. Thanks again to Dr. Emma Gluck for their informative conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts from gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts and follow them at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast of choice. Thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting your Gwinnett County Public Library.